Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Episode 3, Jamestown, The Settlement. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want it to continue, you can sign up for membership at thehistoryofpodcast.com by clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It only costs $5 a month. Our newest members this week, or our pioneers, as it were, are listeners Michelle, Joanne, and Cara. Thanks, guys. I couldn't do this show without you. On April 26th, 1607, three ships sailed into Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. These were the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery, and they had just travelled across the ocean to found a colony. The captain of the flagship, the Susan Constant, one Christopher Newport, decided that they would disembark and get the lay of the land. He went with Wingfield, Gosnold, and a few dozen others, including George Percy, one of our sources for the expedition. They explored the coast and country, and liked what they saw, before returning to the ships as night fell. I'm now going to quote Percy's description of what happened next. At night when we were going aboard, there came the savages creeping upon all four, from the hills like bears, with their bows in their mouths, charged us very desperately in the faces, hurt Captain Gabriel Archer in both his hands, and a sailor in two places of the body, very dangerous. After they had spent their arrows, and felt the sharpness of our shot, they retired into the woods with a great noise, and so left us. End quote. The story of the United States starts with Jamestown, but that doesn't mean there wasn't anything going on before the colonists arrived. As I've said a couple of times now, I am going to have a full series of episodes covering Native American history, but that isn't our task for the moment. Right now, I want to introduce the Powhatan Confederacy. A common criticism levelled at the Native Americans is their failure to effectively unite against the European threat, but this isn't completely true. In the 1560s, the Spanish ventured as north as the modern state of Virginia and came into contact with the Powhatan. One of the Native Americans was taken back to New Spain where he was given the name Don Luis, but he returned home and forced the Spanish back. This sparked rapid political development as the tribes along the Chesapeake united to force back a possible Spanish threat, which ultimately never materialised. But it did mean that when the English arrived, the natives were prepared to meet them. The Powhatan Confederacy was led principally by two brothers, Wahun Sonakok and Openchankanoff. Desperately hoping my attempt at pronouncing them is better than Roanoke. Some, most notably Karl Breidenbrer, theorise that Openchankanoff is the very same Don Luis, but I'm not entirely sure how convinced I am by these suggestions. They are interesting, to say the least. I'm going to put a map of Chesapeake Bay on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, to explain the geography of what I'm talking about a bit better. Towards the south of the bay are two rivers, the James River and the York River. This was the heartland of the Powhatan Confederacy, but under the leadership of the warlike Wahunsonokok, their influence expanded as far north as the Potomac. His leadership was totalitarian in the core of his empire, 
which is why our sources describe him as a despot. But beyond this relatively small area, he was more of a chief of chiefs. He certainly never attempted to go to war seriously against the more established tribal groupings of the interior, such as the Iroquois or the Sioans. But there were raids, of course. Wahun Sonicok collected tribute in food, pearls, beads, skins, and tobacco. In addition, he had a monopoly on the trade of luxury goods, such as copper and iron. Wahun Sonicok placed family members in positions of power, and used this to control his wider empire. The most powerful of these family members was Opechankanov. The Powhatan Confederacy had a population of around 15,000. Most people avoided the exposed areas of the coast. They instead lived in villages of usually less than 100 people on high ground next to rivers. Though you shouldn't think of them as anything like European villages or modern villages, groups of houses clustered together. These tended to be rather spread out. 20 houses could easily be spread over 10 acres. The rivers provided transport and communication while the high ground meant that they weren't affected by flooding. This was just part of a wider network, which connected the entire eastern seaboard from Canada all the way to Florida. These people really weren't ignorant savages. That said, they certainly weren't peace-like. The Powhatan Confederacy was built for war, and Wahun Sonicok was able to pull together a force of 1,200 to 1,500 warriors, which was easily enough to assert his will upon the region. Custom demanded that when making important decisions, the chiefs consult with the, and there's no way I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Korkowazovs, a word which I can probably translate as counsellors. They were a group of village elders, warriors, and priests. The elders had experience, the warriors would have to deal with the fighting if going to war, and the priests had the ability to see into the future, and more broadly, act as an intermediary between the tribe and spiritual forces. They would read omens, and then give the appropriate advice. Powhatan religion worshipped a god called Ahone, who was perfect and who created the world and all lesser gods. He was, however, distant, and said the most important god to the Powhatans was Ochius. This was with whom the priests communicated. He was a vengeful god who needed to be appeased. That should serve as a reasonable introduction to the Powhatans, and allow us to get back to our main narrative, April 26th, 1607. Our sources have very little to say about the Indian attack, aside from the fact that it happened. The English made their way back to the ship, and then there was the small matter of choosing a leader. That isn't quite the right way to put it. Perhaps I should say there was the small matter of finding out who was to lead them. You see, the choice of leadership was made by the Virginia Council. You should remember this from last week, the body which had been created to oversee both the South Virginia Company's colony at Jamestown and the Plymouth Company's colony at St. George's Fort. The council was worried that if they announced the leadership before the expedition took place, that some of the gentlemen simply wouldn't be interested in going. What they decided to do instead was to put the name of the leaders inside of a box, which could then be opened when they had arrived safely in Virginia. 
By that point, it would be too late for any of the grumpy gentlemen to throw their toys out of the pram and go home. So, Newport opened the box to reveal the names of the ruling seven. You'll already know several of these names. There was Newport, captain of the Susan Constant, Gosnold, founder of the Enterprise, and captain of the Godspeed, Wingfield, Gosnold's cousin, and Keely Mover and getting funding for the expedition, and Radcliffe, captain of the Discovery. There was also Sir Richard Martin, master of the Royal Mint, and three times Lord Mayor of London. He had sailed with Drake to bring home the colonists at Roanoke. Member number six was Captain George Kendall. He was connected both with parliamentarian Sir Edwin Sandys and Lord Salisbury. The seventh of these leaders was to be John Smith, currently under arrest. These seven would then choose a president who would serve for a year, unless he was removed. This could be done by a vote of the majority of the council. It was expected that the seven would make decisions together, but it could come down to a vote, with the president carrying two votes. It was a good system, but it had a couple of problems. One of the council, Smith, was in custody, and was hated by Newport and Wingfield. They wouldn't let him take his seat. In addition, George Percy and Gabriel Archer both expected to be named on the council. There was now the question of just what their role in the expedition would be. Well, the council voted. Wingfield was elected president of the colony, but he shared command with Newport, who was tasked with exploring the country for a couple of months before returning to England with the ships. Archer was made secretary, which answered the particular problem about what to do with him. They spent a couple of weeks exploring the James River, even moving a couple of miles inland. They then had a great stroke of luck when they discovered a channel of deep water in the James. This was significant, as it allowed the ships to safely move upriver. This would save weeks of finding a suitable harbour. The natives also appeared to be friendly, for the most part. They had been attacked on their first night, so I'm not sure you could call them completely friendly. It was now time to found the settlement. Gosnold favoured a point called Archer's Hope, but Wingfield wouldn't allow this because the ships couldn't get close enough to the location. Instead, a locale was chosen two miles upstream from here, a peninsula which they named Jamestown Island. Jamestown Island was about three miles long in the yellowish James River. The island was dominated by reedy marshes, which cut into the woods and meadows. It was about 50 miles from the coast, which should protect it from the Spanish, and the fact that it was only connected to the mainland by a narrow causeway offered it protection from the natives. The boats could easily dock due to a deep channel of water, and there was plenty of nearby timber. It seemed a great location, but the marshes would cause problems. The Virginia Council had instructed the settlers to not choose a low or moist site, as this would cause disease. This instruction was ignored. You'll see the effects of this later. On the 14th of May, they disembarked and set up camp. They broke into small groups. One team began building fortifications in a half-moon shape. Others cleared away the undergrowth, others cut trees, and the rest made fishing nets and prepared the ground to grow crops. The beachhead was established. A week later, Newport set off on his mission. He was to find a mountain which might have gold. 
and to find a river which went to the East India Sea. This is the same sea I mentioned last week and seems to be referring to the Pacific Ocean. He sailed with 23 men. These included Percy, Archer and Smith. Smith appears to have still been technically under some sort of arrest, but he would be properly released sometime in mid-June and restored to the council. While Newport didn't find the Pacific, he did find natives who wanted to trade and gave him information. It was here that the English learned of Wahonsonicoc. He explored up the James as far as he could go, and to mark the occasion, on the 24th of May, he planted a cross with the Latin inscription Jacobus Rex, in English, King James. This act claimed the territory for England, not that the natives realised this at the time. Newport very happily misled the natives about the true significance of planting the cross. He kept up the pretense that this was only a trading mission, but he was not the only one putting up a show. The Powhatans misled Newport over the identity of Wahonsonicoc. They told him that it was Chesapeake tribes who attacked him on the 26th of April, not the upriver Powhatans. Newport was quite happy to believe them. It was very good to know they had friends upriver. What he didn't realise was that the reason the Powhatans were putting on such a show of hostility was to keep the English upriver, while a force of 200 warriors launched an assault on the Jamestown colonists. The fighting was hard, but the English held out and used the ship's cannons to force back the Powhatans. In the fighting, two were killed, a boy and one of the gentlemen, named Eustace Clovel. In addition, 11 were injured, including Gosnold, Radcliffe, Martin and Kendall, while an arrow was actually shot through Wingfield's beard. While we don't know who launched the attack, it seems likely that Wahon Sonicoc wanted to test the Europeans. If this is what happened, he was very troubled at how easily they had held off 200 of his finest warriors. He would need to rethink his approach. It also convinced the English that they would need to rethink their approach. The Virginia Council had recommended that a square fortification be built around a market square, which would hold the church and storehouse. This would allow a more gradual expansion as more settlers arrived. While this was all well and good, it wouldn't be remotely practical if the colonists had been killed by the time the new settlers arrived. They needed to increase their fortifications. It was decided that the settlement would become a triangle with three defensive walls, with the main south wall along the coast of the island about 140 yards in length, while the other two walls were 100 yards each. At every corner, a half-moon fortification was to be built with a watchtower which would house a cannon. The walls were a palisade, about 8 feet high, to protect them from arrows, but there were holes in the timber allowing the English to fire back. The cannons were also located so that if a Spanish ship wanted to get close to the island, because of the water channels, they would have to get within the firing line of the cannons. The houses of the fort were about 10 yards inside of the wall. I'll pop a map of the settlement on the website to help you familiarise yourself with it. There we are. The colony was established. Jamestown was founded. Newport had completed his exploration mission, and on Monday, June 22nd, 1607, 
he set sail back to London to report to the council how things had gone so far. This is where we shall leave the narrative for now. Next week, we'll see how Wahon Sonnecock handles the settlers, we'll explore what happens with Newport when he returns to England, and we'll follow the fate of the colony as we truly begin the story of America. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find us online. Thehistoryofpodcast.com is the website where you can find maps for this episode, in addition to signing up for the membership feed if you want to support the podcast. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter, at historyjamie. And if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the show but don't want to, the members feed, or perhaps you've already signed up for the membership feed, and you're wondering what else you can do, then you can leave an iTunes review. It takes about five seconds to go into iTunes, search for the podcast, and leave a star rating and perhaps a few words saying what you like about the show. It would help tremendously with pushing the show up the charts, which is how more listeners uh, find the show. I'll see you next week, and thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.